Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. James Holly Jr. James earned a PhD in in engineering education from Purdue in December 2018 and is now an academic interventionalist working in Martin Luther King Jr. Senior High School in Detroit, Michigan. James's personal mission is to invest in the prosperity of black and urban youth by helping young people develop their mental, physical and spiritual capacities so they may become mature individuals and active members of society. With a keen awareness of the debilitating effect of systemic racism on the lives of black Americans, James advances his mission through designing educational experiences that stimulate young people's cultural growth, intellectual growth, intellectual competence, and socio-political consciousness. James's dissertation entitled of the coming of James, a critical autoethnography of teaching engineering to black boys as a black man is very aligned with his personal mission. Today we've asked James to discuss his dissertation and his use of critical autoethnography. James welcomes to Research Briefs. Thank you, Ruth. I am sincerely honored to participate as a guest on your podcast and I'm very excited about that conversation. Thank you. Um, I should tell the viewers I did get to uh, see you graduate a few weeks ago, and so that was very, it's exciting to see you again, even over Zoom. (laughs) Um, To provide a bit of a brief introduction to listeners, can you tell us about your pathway into engineering education research? Yes, I can. So I am originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I graduated high school called University of Detroit Jesuit High School, and um, my high school graduating GPA was a 2.69, and I often mention that because uh, statistically, I should not have gotten as far as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, being a black male, the statistics are not in my favor, and then coming out of Detroit, uh, the, our educational system, but in particular, graduating high school with a 2.69 GPA, it, you're not generally seen as being on the college track. Um, and so I, I did my bachelor's degree. I went to Tuskegee University in Tuskegee, Alabama and studied mechanical engineering. Um, not necessarily out of a deep interest in engineering, more so out of a uh, liking of math and science. And I did okay. You know, I can't say I did too well with a 2.69, but I did okay. And um, that's the way that I was encouraged to pursue. And the problem solving really spoke to me. And during that journey, uh, one of my professors, Dr. Maria Calhoun, mentioned to me around my, I think it was my junior year, I first met her as a TA, and then she became a professor. And when I was taking her class, she said, you're going to get a PhD someday. And at the time, I had not heard of a PhD. I wasn't familiar. And so, I, you know, I respectfully said, thank you. I appreciate that. But I don't <laughs> really know what you're talking about. Um, but I deeply appreciate your uh, confidence in my capabilities. And so when I... Um, became a senior and it was now time, you know, getting near the end of the undergraduate career. I went back 
to her and I said, okay, you know, I, you said something about a PhD. I'm not sure what that is. Is there like an intermediate step, you know, or and she mentioned the master's program. So I was like, well, let me try a uh, master's because that would give me more specialized, uh, a specialized skills in engineering. It'll be more focused. And at the time I wasn't really convinced that I wanted to become an engineer as a profession. I had a deep interest in youth development and extracurricular opportunities. And so, um, we agreed on that and she helped me learn about the process, get, you know, help me figure, find recommendations. Um, and then I went to Michigan State and I studied mechanical engineering. And then that's when I was certain that I was not going to become an engineer. <laughs> um, my interest in math completely stopped when it became letters and, you know, these proofs and all this. I, I didn't want to prove anything. And so I was like, this is not this is not it. Um, I struggled, but I made it through there. But along the process, I had a colleague who told me about the Purdue Engineering Education Program. And as she spoke about it, um, which is ironic because through her, I learned about it. And that's how I ended up going and successfully completing the program. But she later did not want to go, even though she was the one who initially told me. And so that was very interesting. But I saw as an opportunity to merge my engineering training that I had decided I didn't really want to further with my what I felt was my calling to serve youth, particularly black urban youth. And I wanted to focus on the K-12 engineering uh, education and using that um, as a way to kind of engage you through engineering, um, but primarily focus on youth development. And so that's, that's how I came to uh, pursue engineering education at Purdue. So, Clearly, there's something about engineering itself, the mindset that you find really valuable um, and want to pass on. Um, can you just say a little bit about that, even though you say, you know, you, you're clear you don't want to be an engineer, but obviously there's something about engineering that's appealing to you. Yes, and that the thinking part is what captured me. Engineering has a way of developing uh, in some ways, right? Like not in everything, it doesn't really transcend everywhere, but particularly in the context of engineering, you have to be a critical thinker. You have to take uh, um, what they call, some people have called wicked problems, unclear problems with unclear solutions and use what you do know to find out what is unknown. And, you know, it's a lot of times there's not a clear answer or a quote unquote right answer, but there's an optimal answer like, you know, this way will get you, this solution will get you a certain result and this solution will get you a certain result. Which one is better for your ultimate end or desire and goal? And that is what intrigued me. And as I related to youth, I wanted to translate that to their social circumstances, particularly again, black youth in urban context, they have to navigate racist structures, they have to navigate a lack of resources. Um, and a lot of, you know, how they think about themselves and what they're capable of. Um, a lot of times it's limited and restrained, and so they have to think outside of what they haven't even seen. Because a lot of times they don't see people who have done, you know, gone to, to do a PhD or been successful in particular ways. And so I felt like it fit very well with engineering, and I wanted to kind of train students to think in that critical way in a social context. Um, so not necessarily in dealing with dynamics or uh, you know stress. And in, in, uh, in terms of how it relates mechanically, but stress socially, stress psychologically, how do you um, use those engineering thinking principles to create an optimal solution as it relates to their lives? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So um, in research briefs, we talk a lot to folks who've used new and exciting methods. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk a bit about was um, critical autoethnography, which was the method you used for your dissertation. So can you start for people that haven't maybe heard of critical autoethnography before and give us a really quick summary of what that is? Yes, so autoethnography definition I like is a systematic analysis of one's personal experiences within a particular culture, community, or context. And so the idea is to do more than just talk about your story, a personal narrative, but you're seeking the sociological understanding given some particular cultural context. Um, and then the critical part, um, and through my dissertation, I like to say the critical is critical. You know, I didn't just throw that in there to make it sound fancy. But the critical aspect, uh, critical ethnography uses data to analyze how structures of power inherent in culture inform some aspect of her or his own story. And so for me, my cultural context um, was being black and also being a black man. So how does the society's power dynamics and relates to me being a black male play out in, in uh, how I learned engineering as well as how I taught it. So um, because I know you a bit, um, I know that you didn't really start out using this idea. Um, yeah. So can you tell me, tell the listeners a bit about kind of the journey to using autoethnography versus more traditional methods? Yeah, so it, it was definitely a journey, um, a lot of different changes. Um, one thing that was consistent is when I came in, I knew I wanted to focus on uh, researching black youth in the urban context like Detroit. Um, but a, a long time that narrowed down to black boys. Um, and so a lot of the time I was just figuring out well, what was the best method to kind of um, understand their experiences in a different way and do this type of course, the thing that I wanted to do. And so early on, I learned about research methods and ethnography and case studies really intrigued me. Uh, I wanted to sort of facilitate a course and then interview the participants about their experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ethnography seemed like it would be able to do that, but more in particular, case studies seem like if I created this experience and how did that case, how were they impacted in, you know, studying that case. And so the course was designed in your class, right? Mm -hmm. That really helped me out taking your class and the course I designed that was for black males. Um, but as I learned more about black males, I learned from, from a research and scholarly perspective, I should say, because I had my own experience. I have a lot of black male friends, but studying them, or I should say us, <laughs> from a research and scholarly perspective, um, helped me see it in a more broader and generalized pers uh, perspective and I noticed a correlation between our public school experiences and our civic experiences. Um, and when I say civic, I mean how we live outside of the classroom, just in general life as a citizen. And the consistency or the correlation was failure, right? So it was failure on the part of the institutions that are supposed to service us. They did not do that well. They did not prepare us to be successful in, in either of those contexts. And so there are things like being profiled, racially profiled, um, disparities in punishment, in school that looked like school suspensions, um, outside the school context that was like jail and prison sentencing, um, things that black males did, that white males or other males did, 
they, the action would be the same, but the consequence, the prince, the sentence would be different. Um, and then just a high number of arrests in general. And so regardless of how black males did in school, we still have to navigate society as citizens. And so I, I felt like the civic dynamic was even more important though correlated, I felt like it was more important than even what was going on inside the schools. And that really shifted my research focus a lot. Um, and so I wanted the teaching experience and the research experience to be empowering for their in-school and out-of-school experiences. And so I began to move on from case study and see how can I do something more impactful, more like broader, that have a bigger impact. And so I started to talk with actually your first podcast guest, Dr. Alice Pauly. Um, we began having conversations and that was very helpful um, and she began to ask questions to bring up my thoughts and kind of help me narrow and really see that case study in general wasn't it, but I didn't really know what was next, but she just asked questions and had conversations and gave me resources. And so eventually she told me about PAR or what is called participatory action research. Um, and there's a, uh, I could say, a version of that that's YPAR, youth, youth particular, I mean, youth participatory action research. And what that does is you work with youth to build some research projects. So you train the students in the research methods, and then they come up with the topic of what they want to study. And it's this civically infused, um, empowering, critical thinking experience. And that I thought, I was, so about three years into the program, I thought that was going to be it. Um, I thought that was the methodology and I was moving forward with that, reading more literature. But the problem was I still had in my in my mind what I wanted to teach, what I wanted the outcomes to look like, um, and not necessarily what I wanted them to gain or how I want them to experience it, but more so what I want to infuse or instill in the students. Whereas YPAR was much more open and student-led. And so I didn't want to um, give a superficial representation of empowerment and, and act as if I was empowering students, but not but taking away their choice. Um, and so that didn't really settle completely because I had a lot in mind already. And so during one of my research group meetings, a colleague of mine, now Dr. Avneet Hira, uh, suggested the olive ethnography. And it was kind of a random, not fully serious, but like, just check this out. You ever think about that? And the weird part is it, it kind of circled back to where I started in looking at ethnography. It wasn't an all of ethnography originally, but it kind of brought me back to that space, whatever was there. And as I began to look more into it, it made sense. Mm -hmm. And so I'm you know, forever grateful for that recommendation. Um, and there were even some points where people asked, what about action research? Why didn't you consider that? And for me, as far as looking at the key questions and things that made the distinctions, like action research is focused on like studies, studying one's practice. Right? Like you make a plan, you take action, you observe and reflect and making changes to your teaching practice. Whereas all of ethnography was focused more on gaining knowledge about how one's identity impacts and is impacted by one's practice. And so that to me was the core, like working with black males specifically, we have this core, this, this similar identity dynamic that gives us um, a capital in the similar experiences. And I want to explore how my identity connecting with them impacts how they understand engineering and, and, and just go about their life. And um, ethnography also places the research as a source of data. And that also correlated with my, um, my theoretical framework, Black Critical Theory or Black Crit, which is a subgroup of critical race theory that really emphasizes storytelling. 
and telling personal narratives. And so when those two, they gelled well, and it, mm-hmm. that is how I landed on critical autoethnography. So um, I guess I'll put on my professor hat for a moment and just I want to point out how useful it was that you stayed open to thinking about what really is your research question, what is the framework you want to use, and what method is going to provide the answers you want, and that you were um, really diligent in finding what worked best. So hats off to you for that. Um, and I, I think it, I, I would recommend that people read your dissertation. It's, it's really very, very well done. Um, Thank you. So uh, when one starts to include oneself in part of the data collection or really you know, be part of the data collection, I know there are challenges that come up with that. Um, so could you say a bit about some of the challenges you encountered once you decided on autoethnography? Yeah. So. Um, another thing we could do that uh, helped me feel comfortable or choose autoethnography was I thought it would give me opportunity to challenge traditional ways of doing research. And in general, like the broad field of research, but in particular, how black males are analyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like know and I read a lot about deficit narratives and how much research there's I think black males are one of the most overly researched people groups but yet nothing changes in how they're served or interact or engaged and so I wanted to challenge that way of looking at uh, black males but I also wanted to give a perspective that was more complex and so me being a human being that gave me the space to be complex and in the way that I did my research. And so one of the challenges was really trying to get whatever is in my head on paper, trying to figure out how do I help people actually know and see what I'm thinking in an authentic way. And so the the way I chose to collect data was very critical. Um, One of the methods was interviews. And so I chose a scholar who has expertise in interviewing and is familiar with critical race theory. And so she was able to ask questions that really brought out uh, my thinking process and, and forced me to elaborate on certain decisions that I can identify as other, that, that are different from other people, right? So if I'm in a, for example, if I'm in a classroom with another white male and we're watching, or we're teaching, we're teaching engineering, the definition of engineering, that teacher may define it one way, I may define it another way. That's the obvious difference. But when the students respond to that definition and how they tend to use it, right, what then do I decide to do after that? Right? How do I come back later that day? Or how does the other teacher respond to the student's response to their definition? Those are the things that I may not know are different. Right? I may not know uh, are kind of untraditional or non-traditional the way that I interacted with the students. And so I needed someone who could, you know, someone outside of myself who could identify the ways of interacting with the students that may be different, the ways, uh, not only in language, but even posture, um, this, you know, the arrangement of the classroom and those type of dynamics. Um, also journaling and ask, trying to figure out the proper questions to ask within the journal 
so that it again i'm not already thinking about what answers i want to get out but i'm actually being in the moment and being present not focus on the end goal of the research outcomes and when i want people to understand and communicate uh i mean what, what i want people to know but being present and um that was difficult um another challenge during the writing process well journaling and the final writing was figure out what who my target audience audience is and knowing that particularly black males or black youth are in the most black males are in the educational context where their teachers are of a different race and gender um generally most black males are taught by white women and that causes a lot of issues with the cultural gaps that exist and initially I was like I'm writing this for white female teachers or white teachers in general but that did not allow me to to really be authentic because I was talking and writing as if it was for them as opposed to telling my own story in the way that I wanted to tell it and allowing other people to glean what they can or hopefully they get it but also realizing I need to talk to black teachers as well, um, male or female. And so that was one of the challenges in my mind is like focuses on telling my story because so much of research as well is about separating yourself the way that we, I was trained in research um, in academia is separating yourself, being an objective researcher, and that's just not realistic. And so I had to work towards freeing or emancipating my mind to actually tell my own story the way I wanted to tell it. Um, as, as you probably know, uh, or as I've told you before, I'm interested in using autoethnography myself. And one of the things that I surprisingly found was exactly what you're talking about of this idea of, oh, now I'm researching myself. And that totally throws over any idea of being objective and and just seeing how much I resisted that even though I, I thought I wouldn't resist that I thought I was over that but uh, but it's so ingrained in us that when we're a researcher we're objective and we're interviewing other people and we're collecting data from other people not we are being interviewed and using our own interview as a source of data for us um, yeah. So again, you're you're very courageous to do that. Um, have you had challenges with other people thinking about your dissertation, or how has your work been received? Um, well, this may be funny, but the the biggest person who I've had, or the main person I've had this type of conversations were not really um, a problem, I guess, but having the same issue, like, is this objective? Is this research? It's my pastor, actually. <laughs> and I talk with him, and, you know, so he's like, but how, what are you researching? How is this, you know, he, he struggled a lot with that idea of myself being the data. And, but mostly the, the reactions have been positive, encouraging. But the way I think about it is, as an educator, we have to recognize that 
the way we pass on or transmit information, it comes through us first to the next person. And we are cultural beings. We are active beings. And so, you know, how you transmit information, Ruth, is going to be different based on your experiences, your beliefs, your um, the way you see the world, your value systems. And so putting ourselves in, in into the research experience is just allowing us to be honest about how we're shaping and, and coloring that information is being transmitted the information is still being the same um, but we infuse in a particular way now what i also encourage is the fact of using my cultural background and my racial identity and my life experiences as a scaffold right this is not just you know showing black faces to the students so they can say i've seen a black engineer i'm empowered but it's more so helping them connect with the information so that they can see it as relevant in their context mm -hmm. and the way that they think. And so for me, you know, I really enjoy culturally relevant pedagogy and that's about using culture as a scaffold to increase cognitive processing and information, not necessarily to make someone just feel better or feel excited. Though that is a, that can be a byproduct, right? And so by me being honest about the way that I impacted their experience, I was able to extract those particular ways that um, scaffolded the students' understanding, or at least attended how I intended to scaffold their understanding, how I intended to um, shape the classroom experience in a way that made sense to them and how they think and how they understand things, um, at least how I anticipated they thought and understood things um, in ways that other people may not. So. I would like to end with the question that I always end with, which is if other people are thinking about trying a new method or creating a new framework, um, what advice would you have for them given your experience with doing this for your dissertation? Do it. <laughs> Do it. I mean, I was told that the PhD process is about uh, creating generating new knowledge and new ideas in new ways. And uh, though I have certain thoughts about that now, that's what I was told it was about. And so I was certainly encouraged to expand and 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 um, expand those boundaries, push against them. Uh, along the way of my own journey, I had many people tell me, this is a popular saying, like the best dissertation is a finished dissertation. And I disagree, you know, I don't really know what the best dissertation is, but just because it's finished doesn't mean it's like of good or high quality or what the field or society needs. And so I think what we need to do is push those boundaries and don't settle when approaching with it may be uncharted or lightly trotted territory. Um, find people that will encourage you and help you through the complex challenges that come through, uh, that arise as you push through your journey. And, you know, the time that we spend to overcome what doesn't originally make sense or seem clear to us will eventually enrich our work, right? Like, so I'm, I'm thankful for the positive feedback now, but when I was in the middle of the weeds, um, it was times I was like, well, I could take this shortcut. I was just get this out just to get it done and then work on it later when it's all published or, you know, I just want to graduate. And now I'm thankful that I didn't just do, you know, just do it or just get through it, just try to finish, but I spent, long hours and days um, asking myself questions, trying to figure things out, doing drafts over and over of research questions and journal questions. And um, I think that ultimately, 
you know, we need transformative research and that's not easy. So no. do it, um, find a good support group and, and hopefully it turns out well for you. Well, again, your dissertation is really a, a powerful document and um, I hope it's a book someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see about that. You'll see about that, yes. But I, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's worth it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, James, thank you so much for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, your story and your tenacity and your courage inspires me, and I hope it will inspire others as well. So. Well, you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome for all of that. I appreciate it, and, and thank you for having me. Well, you're very, very welcome. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com. <laughs>